Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time to clap your paws, stomp your hooves, and ruffle your feathers. Your vehicle, Bravo 229er, is now ready. Please begin immediate boarding and have a safe and informative journey. Wayne, thank goodness you're all right. Is everything okay? Honey, I shrunk the audience. We're now leaving the land of fantasy and entering the world of the future. W Radio, your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 315 for the week of March 10th, 2013. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with this podcast, my videos, blog, live broadcasts, special events, my Walt Disney World trivia books, CDs, and more. You can find it all over at www.radio.com. Today's broadcast is brought to you by Audible.com, where you can get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash Radio. There are more than 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including many Disney books like Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination, and Ridley Pearson, Kingdom Keeper series. Again, you can sign up for free over at audibletrial.com slash Radio. So with the opening of Disney's newest film release, Oz the Great and Powerful, this week we're going to look at the long and lost history of Disney and Oz. Going back to the 1930s, we'll look at Walt Disney's quest to tell the tales of the land of Oz, what almost was, and what never came to be. You'll hear untold stories from Jim Corcus, including the plot of the movie that was never made. We'll also discuss Disney's previous Oz offerings, its presence in the Walt Disney World theme parks, including the Great Movie Ride. There, we'll look at how the Wizard of Oz was supposed to be seen in that attraction and why it never came to be. We'll then finish off with a discussion of the new film and what the future may hold. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned for some information at the end of the show before playing some of your voicemails. So sit back... Relax and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. On March 8th, Disney released their next big 3D film, Oz the Great and Powerful. Directed by former Spider-Man director Sam Raimi, it's one of Disney's biggest movies of the year, costing more than $200 million to produce, not including the marketing campaign that goes along with it. And this isn't the first, or probably the last, film inspired by the Wizard of Oz stories. And that story was originally developed as a series of best-selling fantasy novels that began with the title The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by American author L. Frank Baum in 1899. And believe it or not, this is not Disney's first trip down the yellow brick road, as this story begins not with the release of Oz the Great and Powerful, but goes back to the 1930s. So today, we're going to look at the world of Disney and Oz, the history, 
and how they finally arrived at the great and powerful. And joining me this week is the man with the heart of a tin man, the courage of a lion, and a voice like Judy Garland. He is Disney author and historian, and my good friend, Jim Corcus. Hey, and I noticed you didn't say anything about a brain at all, but that, that's okay. And, 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 and Lou, Lou, can you hear me? Is, is the connection strong? For those of you who are tuning in, Lou thought, you know, Lou always thinks bigger, so he thought it would be great to have this hot air balloon publicizing WDW radio, and he figured if I was piloting the balloon, there'd be plenty of hot air to keep it aloft. But that was not the case. I've, I've crashed here uh, in, in the land of Oz, and so I'm, I'm phoning in on, on one of the uh, uh, Ozma phones that they, they have over here. It, it's all green, and yeah, I, I had to chop up part of one of the yellow bricks here to, to put it in there, but I, I think we've got enough time on, uh, on the phone here to do this. So, so uh, if you're having difficulty hearing me, uh, it, it, it's because I'm in uh, Oz right now. Thanks, thanks, uh, thanks to Lou here for crying <laughs> out out loud. And and so I guess that does prove I I, I don't have a brain. Well, so, we spent so what, what, we spent all ahead, the Luke, budget. What, what are you, I'm not there sitting next to you, so I can't <laughs> see when you want to talk. Okay, what what are you trying to say? I was saying we spent all the budget first on the balloon, but second, and part of the reason why we're doing this, Jim, is because. We're, we're getting ready for our very first WDW Radio at the Movies event. It's coming up on Sunday, March 24th. It's at the AMC Theater in downtown Disney, right here in Walt Disney World. We're going to have to find a way to fly you back here because we're not only going to have an exclusive private screening of the film for WDW Radio guests and family, but everybody's also going to get vouchers for drinking popcorn, an event passport, a stamp, a mystery ticket, and a chance to win a variety of prizes, including signed copies of Jim Corcus's book and much more. And more importantly, you and I are going to be there before the show to talk more about Disney and Oz, maybe answer some questions from people who are there, and they're going to have a meetup after the event. So it's going to be a fun day of Oz-inspired goodness, and I thought it would be a, sort of a good primer for the film and our event to talk about the connection between Disney and Oz, because like I said, it goes much farther back than the, the 2013 film. Because people, I think, Jim, don't realize that, that Disney has sort of been pursuing Oz. They, they've been going, sort of trying to get behind the curtain with different degrees of success, going all the way back to the, the 1930s, right? And it was, a, it was not the easiest yellow brick road, a lot of flying monkeys that they encountered along the way. And it really goes back to, to Walt himself. Talking about the 30s, yeah. You know, um, back in uh, 1934, uh, Samuel Goldwyn, the movie producer Samuel Goldwyn, uh, purchased the rights uh, to the very first um, uh, Wizard of Oz book, which was called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. He purchased it for uh, $60,000, and it was uh, his intention that... Um, it, it was going to be a, uh, a film for one of the, the stars under, uh, that he had under contract, Eddie Cantor, who, who was very uh, uh, popular at the time. Most people don't know him today, so let that be a lesson to all of you who are seeking fame and fortune. This guy was really popular in the 30s. Nobody knows him today. Mr. Make, he was Mr. Making Whoopi. <laughs> Making Whoopi, yeah, and, and the banjo-wise, the whole bit. And, and so uh, Goldwyn's concept was... Um, that uh, Cantor would hit his head or whatever and would dream his way uh, to the land of Oz because they didn't feel that um, uh, 
uh, people could accept a, a a fantasy, you know. So so it would have to be. And 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 uh, Goldwyn had done a a similar film with Cantor called uh, uh, Roman Scandals, where where uh, Cantor uh, dreamed his way back into the uh, the days of uh, uh, the Roman Empire, but again with music from the 30s and dance numbers and and uh, things like that. You know, one of the things most people don't realize is that when MGM was planning their um, Wizard of Oz, one of the very first scripts they had was they felt that people wouldn't believe fantasy. And so uh, the scarecrow was not going to be a scarecrow. It was going to be a, a person who was so stupid, the only job he could get was to dress up as a scarecrow to scare away crows, <laughs> and and the Tin Man was was not a Tin Man. He was a criminal who had no heart. So he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life locked in this metal prison suit. But over the years, his heart you know softened. So you know, fantasy just doesn't um, work. Now. What happens, 1934, 1935, uh, Walt is starting work on um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And, uh, you know, uh, already he's getting uh, uh, complaints. You know, why are you making a feature-length uh, cartoon? Uh, parent groups are complaining. Churches are complaining. Because um, those bright colors are going to hurt kids' eyes if they have to look at it for an hour and a half. And and that there it, it, it's going to be so raucous that that these kids are going to be experiencing ADD syndrome, you know, jumping around on the seats and and uh, and all of this, you know. So this is a terrible, terrible thing. Let alone the fact that you have you know his brother Roy going, well, this is a fairy tale. Who's going to sit, you know, and watch a fairy tale for for you know an hour and a half? So while Walt is working on this in in thirty five. He knows that this is going to be a success. He knows that this is going to be groundbreaking. He had no doubts whatsoever. So what he does is he goes out and he tries to um, uh, get options on, on on the rights of other films. You know things like the uh, uh, the Peter Pan story and and Alice in Wonderland and the Uncle Remus uh, uh, folk tales, all of that. And and he's doing that not just because he can have a library to pull from from future films but he wants to prevent uh other film companies from picking these up and doing this because snow white's going to be such a huge success that people are immediately going to 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 grab for these whatever projects are out there and 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 try to do these uh, do these knockoffs and of course he can't get the wizard of oz he he talked with uh, uh bombs uh widow and she said, "Well, we've got all the other books, but the first one's already gone, and that that didn't uh, that didn't sit well. But uh, he didn't want to purchase the other books because, again, all of the money's going into Snow White, so he doesn't have an awful lot of extra money to, you know, uh, to pick up some of these these other things. And of course, he was absolutely right because when Snow White hits, it is the." Uh, Highest grossing film of all time, of all time, the highest grossing film of all time. Within that first year, it makes $8 million. And so exactly as Walt predicted, people start 
taking a look around and saying, hey, you know, we should be doing something like that. We could do a fantasy film. Right, and he's trying, and he knows, like you said, even before, you know, everybody else is calling it Walt's Folly. He knows that it's going to be a success. He knows right away that he has to follow that up with something else that probably is going to resonate with both kids and adults the same way that, that Snow White does, that same sort of fantasy that, that appeals to both young kids and, and adults as well. And, and, and so, of course, uh, MGM immediately puts into production uh, Wizard of Oz. And the only reason they go with that is um, because of the success of, of Snow White. So for those of you who love Wizard of Oz, you can thank Walt Disney. Uh, because of that. In fact, in the beginning, they were even thinking of, uh, in the preliminary stages, uh, bringing Walt in as a consultant, you know, and, and maybe uh, even having the Disney studio do some animation in the film, because uh, uh, previously, uh, Walt had done uh, a specialized animation for MGM films, like uh, Hollywood Party with uh, uh, Jimmy Durante. There's a, there's a whole silly brand new silly symphony in there in a, a, a section with mickey mouse interacting with jimmy durante uh, but, but walt with the success of snow white it's like i don't have time for any of this stuff i'm going on to pinocchio i'm going on to bambi i'm going on to going on to these other things and so mgm you know uh has to put this together but again they're not really wanting to commit a hundred percent to that to that fantasy element so again it becomes it was all a dream it was all a dream and um uh again very cleverly doing you know kansas in uh you know that sepia tone type thing if any of you actually go back and read the bomb book bomb describes kansas as looking gray that um uh uh Uncle Henry and Aunt Em are are gray with age. That that the uh, farmhouse, the, the the paint has been blistered off by by the heat and the weather, and and even the fields, you know. And so that by the time you get to uh, uh, Oz, and it's all technicolor, it's like whoa, okay, th- this works. Um, and uh, uh, again, uh, it, at at the time they did Wizard of Oz, that was the most expensive MGM film that had ever been done. It, it was close to uh, $2 million. And, um, you know, that's one of those urban legends, too, that, well, when Wizard of Oz rele- was released in 39, it, you know, it really didn't do very well. It wasn't until it was released to TV in 56 and run annually that it really became a hit no it it made over three million dollars but but only in hollywood can you spend two million dollars on a film you make a million dollars above that and you go no that's disappointing that's a failure you know it doesn't have to make money it has to make a lot of money right it's got to well, make and, and that's it you have to make that obscene profit and again compared with snow white it was disappointing snow white had made eight million and and in the first year, Wizard of Oz only makes a, a, a million dollars. Well, I'm sorry. I, I can't help you out. I only got a million dollars here, you know. But I think it doesn't, it, go, it doesn't go as far as it used to, you know. Um, and I think if you, if you look at Wizard of Oz in comparison to Snow White, you can, you can absolutely see a lot of influence that, that Snow White had on it from uh, – whether it's, it's stylistically, you can even see changes that they made from the book to the film. 
And as I was looking back on this, I found out that just like the Seven Dwarfs, they originally had planned on having all the munchkins having sort of individual personalities that were off to see the wizard, very much akin to something like, uh, you know, hi-ho. Even the um, the witch was all uh, originally going to have a different role. So in the book, she was relatively minor, but I think she was expanded more in the film to sort of make her similar to the queen in Snow White and even changed what the what the witch was going to look like from an original design that looked a lot more like the evil queen than that ugly, you know, role that she eventually had. In fact, you're exact boy, you really did your your research. Yeah, because uh Gail Sondegard who who uh had a very uh thin, aristocratic, sophisticated look was signed to to be the witch, but she signed under the belief exactly that it was going to be like uh, uh, the witch in in uh, uh, Snow White. So she was going to be very aristocratic, very cold, you know, but she was going to be, she'd be uh, pretty, but it would be that that uh, that cold type of, of, of uh, uh, prettiness, and she'd be, she'd be clever and all that. And then when they said, oh, and then we're going to use this green makeup, and it's like, get out of here. And so she turned it down, and so literally just days before filming was to start was when uh, Margaret Hamilton was brought in and she was brought in because she was a contract player so if you had actors who were already under contract you were paying them each week you you stuck them into whatever project w- w- was there so uh, that's how Frank Morgan got um, uh, the part of, uh, uh, of the wizard because they were negotiating with WC Fields and Fields uh, uh, wanted more money. He wanted the ability to write his own lines and all of that. And so again, you know, just before filming, you put in, uh, uh, Frank Morgan. So yeah, they, they were looking to see what type of things, you know, can we, uh, uh, duplicate, um, uh, from Snow White and that makeup that, uh, Margaret Hamilton, uh, used, um, very, uh, uh, you know, in, in those days, you didn't have the sophisticated makeup we had. Now, a lot of it was just one step away from uh, uh, grease paint. You know that the makeup they used uh, for Buddy Ebsen, who was going to be the original uh, uh, Tin Man, he kept uh, inhaling uh, aluminum uh, uh, dust, aluminum powder that 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 was on there to to get that little metallic shine, and it it clogged up his lungs, so he had to be, you know. Um, taken to the hospital, and Jack Haley came aboard. And they didn't tell Jack Haley. Jack Haley thought that right. Buddy Epson had just been fired. <laughs> so they brought in, but they changed the makeup. But Margaret Hamilton's makeup, um, uh, in, in that uh, you know scene where she disappears in all that smoke and fire, they did the first shoot. There, there was a little elevator that would drop her down, and that worked fine. And that's what's in the final film. But they do a, a second shot for safety reasons. And, and apparently it jammed slightly, and the flames got on her makeup, and they they, they had to uh, stamp her down and, and all of that and, and scrape off that makeup before she got second-degree uh, uh, burns on her face and her hand. She was, uh, she was out of action for about six weeks recovering, you know. Uh, a lot of those things in those days were done, uh, you know, by, by the seat by the of your pants. Yeah, so it, it's sort of it's interesting to to think about the film and imagine 
these different people in the, these roles, right? Whether it's W.C. Fields, Gail Sondergaard, mm-hmm. certainly Buddy Epson. I know at one point they were looking to maybe have Buster Keaton be the scarecrow, but he had some problems with alcoholism and they were afraid that he was going to have that relapse. I think mm-hmm. the most interesting one was that originally Judy Garland, who was about 16 at the time, who was older than Dorothy in the books, was not their first choice. Their first choice was the most popular child star in the world at that time, which was Shirley Temple. And I know mm-hmm. she was under contract with Fox. They were MGM was going to sort of do a like a, a baseball card trade. Like, well, we'll give you Clark Gable if you give us Shirley Temple. He, you know, he might not have been in Gone with the Wind at that time. Supposedly, according to legend, we weren't there. Temple did not mm-hmm. do well in her audition, and so Judy Garland, you know, obviously the perfect choice. But I, I was thinking about some of the other well, and and not just Shirley Temple. They also went with others. They went with uh, Deanna Durbin. Uh, who was also uh, 16, but she had this operatic voice, so it didn't sound like a little kid voice, you know. And, and Shirley Temple, of course, had, has all those connections with uh, 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 Disney. Of course, she was the one who opened up the uh, Sleeping Beauty walkthrough uh, at uh, at uh, uh, Disneyland. She was the one who, as a little kid, gave gave Walt the Oscar for uh, with the Seven right. Little Oscars for. Uh, 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 Snow White and um, had those connections, but 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 yes, you know, in in terms of casting, sometimes you just have to, you know, you luck in to the right person for for that role. You know, Ronald Reagan was considered for the part of Rick in Casablanca. You know, would that movie have have been as iconic with Ronald Reagan uh, in that, or would it have just been another beam movie? Right. Um, you know, sometimes you you have to go with that, and and again. Um, Judy Garland was uh, a young girl who was blossoming, so just like uh, uh, um, Annette, they had to, to strap her in pretty tightly there um, uh, for for all of that uh, uh, to happen. Um, but but and again, they they even considered cutting uh, somewhere over the rainbow because they thought it just slowed down the film. Uh, some people thought that it was inelegant to have her <laughs> singing in, 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 in a barnyard, you know, oh my God, this is one of our, our, our top stars and she's singing in a barnyard. That's, that, you know, that's inappropriate, you know? Uh, so, uh, uh, Victor Fleming, uh, um, had, had, who was the director had to fight, uh, to keep that in because, uh, uh originally the film ran, uh, uh, just a little over two hours and in those days, most films came in about 90 minutes. So they did go and, and cut, you know, uh, uh, sections. There's a whole musical number which was cut, the Jitterbug, which I think uh, uh, was a good decision. That, that's when they're in the forest. Uh, in, in the movie, you, you see Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch going uh, to the uh, Flying Monkeys. I'm going to send something to, to knock the fight out of them before you get there. But then it cuts to the flying monkeys coming to the forest, and mm-hmm. so what? What not? Uh, you know, Dorothy and her friends around. Well, there was a whole thing where there was the jitterbug, and when the jitterbug bit you, you just started to dance uncontrollably. <laughs> and uh, uh, parts of that were filmed. It, it, it certainly parts of that were rehearsed. I don't think that would have added to the film, but the jitterbug was was very popular when this, you know. Uh, a film w- was going to come out, so it's like, well, we'll put this in, and and this will appeal to the kids. The kids <laughs> will love this. The tweens will love this. We'll we'll go with that, you know. Um, 
nowadays, if they made it, they'd make Justin Bieber the uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the scarecrow. Well, you you, right? um, you mentioned the flying monkeys, and when I was thinking about similarities between Snow White and uh, Wizard of Oz, I, I think the flying monkeys are very much like the raven to the queen, right? They, they're that, yes, that yes, silent exactly. character. Because the queen needs somebody to talk to, right? The the the, the wicked witch needs somebody to, to talk to so we can sort of understand these plot points. That's what that flying monkey represents. Mm-hmm. I, I think about things like the transformation of the queen into the witch and the same, the transformation from Mitch, Miss Gulch into the yes, wicked witch yes. in, in that cyclone. And there's a lot of those... Um, Similar plot points as, as you can sort of pick out if you compare the two side by side. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, one of the reasons, uh, and, you know, we're going to be talking about the long relationship between uh, Disney and Oz. You know, I, I don't think a lot of people put their finger on, on, on the connection there that basically what you're dealing with is you're dealing with the story of a... Um, a Midwest farm child uh, who dreams of a land that's in color with fantastical talking animals and 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 you know buildings that you know uh, soar to the sky and uh, all of this you know so Dorothy's story is actually the the life story of, of Walt Disney and and another connection there is that Baum based uh, the Emerald City, on what he had seen at the uh, 1893 uh, Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair, the the um, World's Fair that Walt's father uh, worked on as a carpenter for a dollar a day and would tell Walt and Roy these stories about this magnificent white city and 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 the spires and the, and the wide you know all of that. So so there's a lot of a lot of connections between. Um, uh, uh, Disney and um, and Wizard of Oz and 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 again the the thing that I always found funny too is that where Oz came from you know where the name Oz came from right Lou if I remember correctly wasn't he looking for a title and was looking around his office or or where he, his workspace and was looking at a file cabinet that had uh, a to a, a to n and then o to o to z that, that's exactly it that's exactly it. You know, and and so we just take it for granted now. You know, oh my gosh, that's that's it. Well, that's where that's where that came from. And again, he was only planning on writing that one book, and uh, he ended up writing fourteen books about Oz before he passed away. Um, but since he was only planning on writing that one book, he had to go through and 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 sort of catch up on the other books and make changes and and uh, 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 all of that. And you know, another connection in the uh, uh, 30s that a lot of people don't realize between Disney and Oz is uh, when Baum passed away, uh, the Baum estate uh, brought on uh, another uh, author, uh, uh, you know, sort of a writer for hire, uh, uh, Ruth um, uh, Thompson, and she wrote actually 21 uh, Oz novels. Uh, She was also working as a writer, a freelance writer, and editor at uh, David McKay Publications. David McKay Publications were publishing uh, Disney books, Disney storybooks. Uh, so uh, a lot of books were produced about, you know, uh, uh, stories of the silly symphonies. And, and so Thompson was writing some of these, like Peculiar Penguins, whatever. 
And so she ran into Roy O. Disney, Walt's uh, uh, brother, and really did a hard sell pitch a couple of times trying to convince him that Disney should do a series of seven-minute uh, Oz cartoons based on her stories. Hmm. And uh, 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 Roy was intrigued by that, and, uh, but Walt and Roy talked with Baum's widow, and Baum's widow was not going to have any of that at all, <laughs> you know. And and I guess Ruth had offered them at a at a bargain price. I think so. <laughs> she was she was trying to promote herself here, and and uh, Bomb's widow was basically no. We're going to you know th- this is going to really focus on my husband's work, not on not on this work for hire person we had here. So just like there had been the Mickey Mouse series and the Silly Symphonies, there might have been a series of Oz cartoons or. A, uh, some of the silly symphonies might have been uh, Oz oriented, so that's a wonderful what might have been um, uh, uh, situation there. I, I, I confess that I haven't read any of the uh, uh, the Thompson books uh, at all, so I, I don't know. Uh, I, I know she did introduce actually more characters to the world of Oz than uh, Baum did, right. and um, we just accept them as oh well. Al uh, Frank Baum must have come <laughs> right. up with that, but you know, well, that's that's beside the point. We got to we got to get back to to Disney here, you know. So 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 basically, what what's happening is about two decades pass. You know, Walt's always thinking about let's do Oz. What are we going to do? Whatever. And in uh, 1954, he's starting to look around, you know, uh, for other projects. Uh, Baum's widow had had passed away. Apparently, she was uh, a, a bit of a challenge to negotiate with, but her son was more amenable. And so, uh, in 1954, Walt uh, bought the rights uh, to 11 of um, uh, the Baum books, of the 14 Baum books. Um, uh, one of them, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, Wonderful Wizard of Oz, that was already tied up. But it was going to fall into public domain in '56, so there was no sense in even trying to negotiate to buy that. And there were two other bomb books that were out there, and Walt went uh, to a film company, and it was one of those uh, 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 cheapo film companies that that made uh, 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 films like Rocket Ship XM and King Dinosaur and and all of that. And uh, Walt uh, purchased the rights to the the remaining uh, uh, two bomb. Um, uh, books at, and he bought those two books at uh, more than what he spent for the uh, uh, eleven from uh, Baum's son, because again Walt wanted to tie all of that up. Because again, his real fear was, I'm going to invest all this time, I'm going to invest my reputation, I'm going to invest money, and if this thing hits, I don't want you know Johnny Come Lately's to come in and and grab this same thing, and uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, put this uh, together, and and Walt was actually thinking of a two-part uh, TV uh, series because he had had success with uh, uh, Davy Crockett and Johnny Tremaine and whatever. Of you know, you run them on TV, and in those days, you know, there were no TiVos or VCRs or Netflix or or you know, go on to a website and bring up this thing. So if you didn't see it on TV, you missed it. But do it on TV and then patch them together 
as a feature, and they do tremendously in, in the marketplace. So he was going to do Oz that way because that way he could also justify um, higher uh, uh, production uh, costs. And at the time, Mickey Mouse Club. And he's thinking, I'm going to use the Mickey Mouse Club kids because, you know, they're under contract to me. I'm paying them every week, you know, and there are some there are some times when we're not filming. So, you know, let's put them in that. And so he actually put them into a 1956, four of them, into a 1956 uh, live-action film with Fess Parker, uh, Westward Ho, The Wagons. And, uh, you know, because it was like, I'm just going to use I I'm paying for them. I'm going to, I'm going to use them. And, um, in 1957, he approached, um, Dorothy Cooper. Dorothy Cooper had, um, written several of the MGM, uh, uh, musicals. She'd written four or five of the MGM, uh, uh, musicals. And so she took, um, uh, uh, looked at some of these Oz books and she was supposed to come up with, uh, Dorothy returns to, to Oz. And she came up with, uh, a story which was called The Rainbow Road to Oz. And uh, her her first draft was really pretty impressive. And, um, oh, Dorothy Cooper also wrote the pilot for Father Knows Best and uh, some of the top episodes, and she had been doing that before Walt had, had pulled her in. So he was looking for a family-friendly type uh, uh, author. Uh, anyway, the, the first draft that she turned in in um, April or so was, was so impressive that um, by July of 57, the Disney company announced that starting in November of 57, they were going to do the Rainbow Road to Oz, which would be Walt's first live-action musical, and it would feature, you know, uh, uh, the Mouseketeers and and, and uh, some of the young actors who were connected with the Mouseketeers, like uh, uh, Tommy Kirk and uh, Tim Considine, Kevin Cochran, um, who weren't actual Mouseketeers, but they appeared on the serials in the in, in the in the Mickey Mouse Club. And what wasn't, and, wasn't Annette supposed to be the Oz Queen? Wasn't she supposed to be yeah, Ozma? Yeah, she, she was to be Ozma, and uh, Darlene Gillespie was supposed to be Dorothy. Uh, Bobby Burgess was going to be um, uh, uh, the Scarecrow. The Cowardly Lion uh, was uh, Jimmy Dodd, and. Um, do you want to know the storyline for the Rainbow Road Toss? <laughs> this, this would be this would be an exclusive for WDW Radio. This would be an exclusive because this has never been published anywhere. The storyline for this. So I have a great idea. Since this is really about that story and plot, I'm going to take this and include it as bonus content on the site for anybody who wants to hear the real untold story and synopsis of this unmade Disney film. So to listen to the entire story, visit wdwradio.com slash 315-315, and you can play it right from the site or download it to your computer or MP3 player and take it with you. Like Jim said, it's only been shared here, and it's definitely worth a listen, but let's keep going. So Walt never officially cancels it, but by 1958, you get the impression, uh, this is really not going to be happening. And early in 1959, um, uh, Ken Anderson is uh, uh, sending out a memo to the uh, uh, animation department. It's a 13-page memo, and he sends out the script of Rainbow Rose to Oz, and he goes, what things can we do if we made this as an animated feature? 
So he's soliciting ideas from um, uh, uh, animators and the story department. How can we take this and convert this maybe into a 90-minute you know, animated feature? Um, and Walt's getting all wrapped up now because as we're getting into 59, he's concentrating more, 58, 59, he's concentrating more on Disneyland because you got the first three e-ticket rides there, you know, uh, going in. Uh, 1959, you've got Sleeping Beauty coming out and it just underperforms. You know, now we take a look at it and we really appreciate Ivan Earl's stylized design and all of this, but, um, it wasn't as big a hit as as uh, Cinderella, you know, or or Snow White. Um, and so Walt is thinking animation is too expensive, it's too time-consuming, it's taken, you know, seven years to do um, uh, Sleeping Beauty, which is a heck of a lot of time in terms of an investment there. But a lot of that is because there's other things happening. There's TV, there's the building at Disneyland, all of that. So that's what's slowing down the production process. But it's still slowed down. And so I don't know about, you know, what am I going to do with this? And and Walt then turns his attention um, uh, to uh, Babes in Toyland, which will come out in uh, uh, 61. Um, now, in between all of that, there's an Oz ride that he, he he's working on uh, for Disneyland. Do you know anything about that, Lou? So wasn't he thinking about sort of an expansion for an existing attraction that was clearly not the e-ticket of Disneyland, but wasn't it going to be the finale for Storybook Land Canal Boats? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You are right on the mark. Uh, yeah, he always felt that the, um, the Storybook Land Canal thing just sort of ended, you know? That there there needed to be a big finale. Walt Walt was a was you know when when um, the Imagineers complained you know why are you putting the Grand Canyon diorama there right before the Main Street that you're going from Tomorrowland and now you're going into the Grand Canyon you know this this doesn't make any sense and Walt says no you you you've got to see that's the the grand finale you started most people will start the train in in Main Street and you go around. And that completes the, the thing, and you've got the big, you know, wow, the, the um, in uh, um, uh, circus acts and all that, it's called the button. You know, that's, that's, that's you know, when, when, when you put up your hands in a, in a certain way and you strike a pose, that's the button. That's, that's the thing that lets you know, yes, it, there's a closure. You, you've, you've completed that. So he wanted that uh, for... Um, uh, the Storybook Land Canal Ride. So he was going to have the Rock Candy Mountain. Now that has nothing to do with 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 Oz. That that has to do with the Depression era, you know, uh, a song, Big Rock Candy Mountain. And originally it was supposed to be uh, uh, rock candy, so it would be crystal like, and you would have the Oz inside the Big Rock Candy Mountain. But then they started to play around and they started to put real candy on the mountain. And Walt custom ordered candy uh, for the mountain and all of that, and uh, and, and the Casey Junior Railroad uh, uh, would would circle around it. It would be about six stories high. Um, so anyway, for the Big Rock Candy Mountain inside would be the big finale. You'd approach the Big Rock Candy Mountain, and there'd be this huge field, and the field would have these propeller uh, flowers. You know, so the, these very design-oriented flowers, but they were propellers. They would spin in, in, in the wind. And this was the very first uh, 
Imagineering assignment of Roly Crump was to come up with those flowers for that. And as you approach the mountain, and, and again, this was uh, uh, designed by uh, Claude Coates, who was uh, Mark Davis. When he designed an attraction, it was always about the characters and the gags. When uh, Claude Coates was designing something, it was about the environment. So uh, that's why, you know, the beginning of the Haunted Mansion, you have the spooky wallpaper and, and things like that. That's Claude Coates' influence. He felt that an attraction should create that environment that you, uh, and he worked on pirates and all that with, uh, with that. So those elements in there. So anyway, you come up to the mountain and you shout out this password and the mountain opens and you go in and there's uh, several dioramas that you're going to see, like the Tin Woodsman's Castle, you know, and so you go through about three dioramas and, and the fourth scene would be the big birthday party uh, for Dorothy. And Walt's plan was in these dioramas, you would have uh, costumes and props from the film. And this was amazing because nobody had done that before. Nowadays, we're used to things like Planet Hollywood and all sorts of museums and all that that have those. But in those days, in, in, in uh, 59, there was no place you could go to see, you know, a movie prop or a movie costume or something like that. So he was going to have that in there. And he was going to have a, um early version of uh, audio animatronics. So um, uh, it, it, it wasn't going to be as sophisticated as the audio animatronics that we eventually got, but it was going to be more sophisticated than the electromechanicals that were there. The electromechanicals were, were the things that, you know, uh, on, on the Jungle Cruise ride, the uh, natives that jump up and down. Those are electrical mechanicals. Or if you go around the, the, the rivers of America and the Indian chief raises his hand and then lowers his hand, that's an electromechanical where you have a, a, a simple, repeatable uh, uh, action. So they'd be a little more sophisticated than that, but pushed a little towards um, uh, audio animatronics. And uh, 22 maquettes, you know, little models of characters were, were built by uh, Joe Rinaldi so uh, you know you had you had the witch you had uh, TikTok uh, you had a spoon man you had uh, and uh, yeah you would go through that and you would have that and of course there's the big birthday party because again the whole storyline and that's why you have the birthday cake and the TV show and all that is it supposed to be Dorothy's birthday so you went through that but uh, you know money went to uh, the monorail went to the submarine ride it went to the Matterhorn it. You know, and uh, that was about it. So fortunately or, or unfortunately, uh, this this doesn't happen. This this Rainbow Road to Oz doesn't happen. Uh, you know, Annette Funicello does not get to play Queen Ozma. Disney goes and they sort of do their uh, their adaptation of, of Laurel and Hardy's Babes in Toyland. That sort of becomes the, the focus for a while. And it, Jim, for a few years, nothing really happened. But I think that there was still this this desire, especially from Walt to keep this Oz story going, to keep doing things with it. They released a number of records that sort of combine the stories and, and the songs to, to tell the story. But when he passed away in 1965, you know, not only did the company lose its father figure and lose maybe even direction, some might say, but they also lost their, their really big cheerleader for Oz. And I think they, they, they continued to put out some of the songs, but after a while, once those records started to uh, dwindle away, 
it really Oz was sort of forgotten about for for many years until we get up to you know early 1980. Okay, well, first off, you've killed off Walt in '65, which is a year earlier than when he passed away. I know. I mean, I meant to <laughs> I meant to say that the records were coming out in '65. You know, Walt passes away not and, long and, after. And, and, and that's about and that's about it. And 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 Walt, of course, was always the the person of if if there's something there that's not working, you don't throw it away. You put it up on the shelf to go back and take a look at it. And we all know the story about, you know, Little Mermaid uh, was first being thought of in, in, in the 40s. And and that uh, in 52, when Peter Pan came out, Walt told Newsweek magazine the very next animated feature coming from the Disney Studios is Beauty and the Beast. Um, but Walt, you know, took a look at that and said, it's just two people who are talking over dinner. You know, there's nothing there. Uh, so you have to find that right hook to, um, uh, to, to, to use. And so Walt was taking a look that, you know, well over a dozen songs had been written, uh, for Rainbow Road to Oz, you know, and you'd paid for those songs, you know, and, and, and they were, they were nice songs. Uh, you know, what can you do with this and, and, and what can you do to keep the franchise fresh and, and maybe start to generate uh, some interest. So, I- exactly. You mentioned 65. I know that was in your mind because that was the first time uh, Disneyland Records uh, released an original record about Oz. It was the uh, Scarecrow of Oz. And what was interesting about it is it was narrated by Ray Bolger, who, um, of course, played the Scarecrow in the uh, uh, 39 film. And I believe this was the first and maybe only time that he came back as that character, and he, he narrated that. It, it, it included, uh, you know, some, some original music. And uh, one of the reasons Ray Bolger was willing to do that is he was playing the villain in um, uh, Babes in Toyland. Uh, and so uh, had that connection with the Disney Studios. And in fact, when Babes in Toyland was released in 61, uh, the Hollywood Reporter announced, uh, you know, when this successful musical is released, the next musical Walt is tackling is Rainbow Road to Oz. And, uh, of course, Babes in Toyland underperformed. It, it, it was not a flop, but, again, just didn't uh, click emotionally with, with audiences. And so now in 65, you have Scarecrow of Oz, and then you start to have um, a, a, a whole series of... Uh, 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 records. You you actually have one uh, where they go back and they do the wonderful Wizard of Oz. They they even have a record uh, called the Rainbow Road of Oz to Oz, Rainbow Road to Oz. But it has absolutely nothing to do with uh, the script. Uh, but it does include uh, several of the songs uh, that were written, like the Oz Pavet. Uh, uh, so you have an alphabet, you have an Oz Pavet. And the pup pup puppet polka and and all of that and the scarecrow of Oz, and, but but again, uh, the last one of those records I I think was the Tin Woodsman that that comes out in in around 1970 or so, and uh, so again this goes into hibernation and and in fact the entire Disney company is in hibernation. You know Walt has has passed away and. It, it's still the company is still being run by a ghost. What would Walt do? Right. And so what is happening is you're having a lot of sequels. You're having a a lot of repeating some of that stuff. A, a lot of that doing things that Walt had already put in place right before his death. So he, he he's actually running the company 
for the next uh, five, maybe ten years, you know, after he, he passed away. But what do you do? What do you do with this um, uh, material? And uh, so uh, when Ron Miller uh, really takes over, he wants to revitalize the, the company. Uh, Ron did an awful lot of things. He invested in Broadway plays. Uh, you know, brought about the Disney Channel, brought about Touchstone so that they could make more adult films. Um, and he was very eager to bring in new talent. And so it was under Ron Miller's watch that you bring in people like Tim Burton. Now, uh, the uh, the level between Ron Miller and, and a Tim Burton all uh, was uh, Tom Wilhite, who is uh, very visionary and nurturing new talent. And he brings in a guy in 1980, he brings in a guy called Walter Murch, who was an award-winning uh, sound and film editor. He'd worked with uh, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, all of these big guys, and everybody felt this guy w is ready to direct. He hasn't directed a film. He's ready to direct. And so he sits down with Murch and he says, okay, uh, what would be your dream project? And Murch goes, I'd love to do a film about Oz. And Will Height just brightens up because uh, a lot of the Oz books have already started to fall into public domain. Disney still has the rights to uh, uh, some Oz books, but they're eventually going to drop in, into public uh, domain very shortly. So what a great way uh, uh, to do this. So he gives him the go-ahead. And so Merch works on, on a script, but it's not until about 1982 that the, the script finally gets uh, uh, approved, and basically it's Dorothy returning to Oz, but going to introduce uh, some of the characters from the Bomb book. Merch is uh, intense that he really wants this to be, you know, um, Bomb's version of, of Oz, not the 1939 MGM movie version uh, of Oz. Wants to stay close to the books doesn't want to compete with the 39 version, so there's going to be no songs at all. And um, if you read some of the later books that Baum did, there, there's a darker tone uh, in, in some of these, and, and this is captured in Murch's uh, uh, script. And so, you know, he goes off, but again, this is the very first film he's ever done. It's going to be a very complicated film. There's going to be filming in Spain and in Italy and in the UK and you know, all, all over the world, uh, you're going to develop these magnificent uh, uh, creatures. And so, uh, uh, you know, when they're developing uh, uh, the scarecrow, it actually takes six operators to operate the, the, the scarecrow. And that's just one character. You know, just to get the, the character to stand up or to sit down, it takes six different people working everything um Right. He was, he's a, for the people who haven't seen it, he was a very sort of advanced uh, a puppet. I mean, for lack of a better term, he was a puppet. Right. And, and, and again, so uh, very influenced by the work of uh, uh, Jim Henson. In fact, uh, Jim Henson's son, Brian, did, uh, did the voice uh, for Jack Pumpkinhead. And um, the, the, the storyline is basically, uh, yes, Dorothy is, is still having nightmares about Oz and, and all of this. And so uh, Uncle Henry and Auntie M decide to take her to this uh, uh, doctor who is uh, going to do uh, electroshock therapy, literally shock her brain, 
make her forget everything about Oz. And and during a terrible lightning storm, uh, Dorothy escapes, and uh, she ends up in Oz, but she doesn't end up with Toto. She ends up with Bolina, this talking hen. That uh, if you read the books, you know what it's about. But if if you only watch the thirty nine movie, it's like, what is this all about? And uh, you're really not running into the Scarecrow and the Tin Man. You're you're running into all of these other characters, Tick Tock and Jack Pumpkinhead, all of them, Mombi the 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 witch, all of these who are in the book but are not in in uh, the thirty nine movie. And everybody's going. You know, where's where's Dorothy's, you know, singing and her friends and, and all of this. Right. That, that's and, part of the problem. You, nobody, you can't identify, you, can, you don't have the sort of that, that imagery that we're familiar with or the character, so it doesn't resonate with anybody because it doesn't bring you back to that original film. Right, and, and you hire a girl who is so young, uh, she's what, about eight or nine, uh, that she can only work three and a half hours a day by law, and she's in every single scene. <laughs> And and you get Will Vinton to do the claymation uh, uh, work, you know, for the Gnome King and 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 all of this. But but again, it, it's a very it starts out dark and dismal. And and when Dorothy goes to Oz, every, the Yellow Brick Road has been torn apart and, and 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 all of this. So this is like, what is going on here? Well, what happens at Disney is you know Disney has turnover of uh, uh, management all the time, and so a new management comes in and goes, you guys have already spent. Seven million dollars in terms of development on this, you know, and we really only budgeted the film at about twenty million, you know. So there's not going to be enough left to uh, really do this film. So we're canceling the film. So they canceled the entire film. They were going to write off seven million dollars. Right. People worry about John Carter of Mars. Here we are <laughs> in in the mid 1980s. Disney's going to write off seven million dollars worth of development. And so they sat, but they sat down and they were, and, and Merch made some cuts and all that. So instead of filming around the world, it was all going to be filmed, uh, at studios in the UK, even Kansas. They were going to film in Kansas? No. Kansas is now on the, uh, uh, Shepperton Fields, which is where Stonehenge is. Shepherd <laughs> is in Kansas Stonehenge. Uh, but, um, uh, and, and then, They've invested all this money in this puppetry, but now they don't have money for the puppets, right. <laughs> for people to operate the puppets and all this. But And so they go through this, and uh, the new head of uh, uh, production doesn't like the work that's coming in from Merch. You know, again, he's a first-time director. It's a very a- ambitious project. So he fires Walter Merch. He goes, no, nope, you're not going to be able to handle it. Well, Walter Merch has very powerful friends. George Lucas was in Japan, and within 24 hours, he was there in England going, I've looked at this stuff, and, and what this guy is turning out is good, and, you know, you should do this. Francis Ford Coppola jumped in. Steven Spielberg jumped in. So Merch gets rehired, and and they, they, they do the film. But uh, by the time it's going to be released in 1985, there's another change in management, and you've got... Uh, um, Katzenberg and you've got Eisner and and they take a look at this and they have no clue what to do with this film. The film is completed. There's no way to really go back and do any re-editing that's going to have any effect on it. It's a dark film. It, yes, it's very close to uh, uh, L. Frank Baum's uh, uh, vision in, in some of his uh, his novels, 
but boy, audiences who uh, you know keep watching Wizard of Oz on on TV every year, this is this is a a cold cold shock. Yeah. It was not the Oz from your childhood, and I think that that was part of the problem, right? It it was very 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 dark. Um, you know, visually there was a lot of great effects. It was actually nominated for an Oscar for best visual effects. Mm-hmm. It lost to Cocoon. But I think part of the problem was, you're right, you know, by the time it gets to this next level of Disney management, Eisner and the team, they want to distance themselves from it, right? They, they realize it's dark. It doesn't resonate with any, everybody. And I think, Jim, this is very much indicative of many of the bad Disney movies of the 80s. Like, look, Condor Man may be mm-hmm. the worst movie ever. <laughs> I, listen, no, listen, Condor Man's got its fans out there. Buddy. I, I know it does, and it's and it's Disney's version of a, of a funniest James Bond, and I get it. But look, you know, they wanted it to work. They wanted this Oz movie to work. They planned parades for for Walt Disney World and Disneyland. There was no audience for it. There was no audience for it based on this film that in 1985. So we really don't get to see. You know, they sort of like let this die on the vine and and die its a very quiet death, but. Disney is smart enough to realize what, uh, you know, everyone's well, affinity and, and, with and, and Oz. again, Return to Oz has its, its, its fans. Science fiction author Harlan Ellison wrote to all of his, his fans. He said, this is a wonderful movie. Go see it before Disney kills it. That's right. Well, you know, and, 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 and again, Disney didn't kill it. Disney just didn't support it. Right. And I'm curious for, for the people who are listening, how many people have actually seen this? Right. How many people have actually seen this this 1980 Disney version of, of this Oz film? I, I, I'm curious as to what the numbers are. I'd love for people to come and, and weigh in on in the show notes. Let us know if you've seen it here or Facebook, Twitter, if you've seen it and what your thoughts are on it or if you've even ever heard of it. Because, Jim, I bet you a lot of people have never even heard well, of this Well, what I'd like is I'd like your listeners to dress up as their favorite Oz character <laughs> and send photos to your website. That's what's happened with the 80 films, too, is you lost that vision. It was just let's toss everything in there. Right. You know, let's toss everything in there and, and throw it at the wall and see what sticks. You see, Walt had a vision. And so whether you liked Disney films or you didn't like Disney films, they all reflected Walt's vision, you know, and and that was clear. And then once Walt was gone, it, it's just all over the place. And and again, I think uh, I, I don't think Eisner and Wells get enough, and Katzenberg too, don't get enough um, uh, credit for refocusing the Disney vision. Whether you like it or you don't. They refocused it, so it, it wasn't just this hodgepodge of, uh, of, uh, uh, of stuff here. And so uh, this, this is 85, and um, uh, the next incursion uh, into Oz territory uh, doesn't play, take place until 89, right? Right, so obviously in 1989, Disney's, Disney MGM Studios opened with relatively few attractions that were operational opening day. Right. But the great movie ride was the weenie. It was the cornerstone. And to show you how much I think, Jim, they realized that Return to Oz was not going to be what should be in the great movie ride, the characters and the property that they own, Eisner chooses to license the characters and the settings and the music from the 1938 film all at a very, very high cost. Oh, uh, a a tremendously uh, high cost. And and people don't realize that... um, even though uh, the book, Wonderful Wizard of Oz, is in public domain, there are elements in the 39 film that nobody can use because they're the intellectual property 
of uh, of MGM. So, for instance, in the books, those are silver slippers, but MGM decided that they should be ruby slippers because they're using Technicolor, and you know the color will really uh, pop. So, even in Return to Oz, they used the ruby slippers, but they paid a huge fee to MGM uh, uh, to do that. And and as you know, in the great movie ride, there were actually supposed to be three sections. That you were supposed to go in the tornado. But um, uh, even though Disney licensed uh, over 200 MGM films for the park, there were some franchises that they had to negotiate uh, uh, separately. Uh, Gone with the Wind was one. Uh, Song of the South is, is one. The James Bond films, because it was MGM UA in those days. Uh, you know, all of those had to be negotiated separately. And so you were charged almost by the minute. So there was going to be the tornado that takes you to Oz. And my gosh, that this is really costing us. So they changed that whole tornado scene uh, to Mickey from um, Sorcerer's Apprentice. And I would not recommend your listeners do this, but maybe if they sometimes there's little backstage tours that take you through the great movie ride. If you look through that section, if you look on the ground, there are different sections painted right. in yellow and gold for the for the yellow brick road. And then you go into the, into the big scene, the um, Munchkin City there, and you have one of the most sophisticated audio animatronic uh, uh, of audio animatronic characters of all time, which is which is the uh, the Wicked Witch there, and and really moves like a human uh, being. She was one of the very first uh, A100s uh, to do that, and then uh, later got even upgraded with uh, Sarcos. Uh, so there's that smoothness, there's the, the thing. And then the, the final scene where you're seeing Dorothy and, and the Tin Man and all of that, I'll bet a lot of people don't realize that Dorothy's voice is Liza Minnelli. Mm-hmm. It's not a clip, it's not a sound clip from the film, it's Liza Minnelli doing the voice, and that the yellow brick road goes in a Z, and if you go to the top, one of the bubbles of the Emerald City actually forms an O, so you've got a hidden Oz right. in that scene. <laughs> and, and I think the thing that people don't realize, Jim, is the great movie ride that, that almost was, right? The, 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 because what they really wanted to do was really tell the story of Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. to, from beginning to end, right? So where the Fantasia scene currently is, that dark room with, with the projection of swords from Mickey, Mickey, that was supposed to be the tornado. That was going to be the tornado that brought Dorothy to Oz. That was going to mm-hmm. lead into the Munchkin Land scene. And you can tell because you can still feel the breeze from the fans that were going to sort of portray and make you feel as though you're in that tornado. So then mm-hmm. you go into the Munchkin Land scene, and then, but move from there, you were actually, there was another scene sort of complete the story where you'd go into Emerald City, you'd go into the wizard's chamber, there'd be a giant floating head on the screen, you know, paying mm-hmm. no attention to the man behind the curtain, and that was what was going to be the final scene of the attraction. Obviously, mm-hmm. why doesn't it happen, right? Because they only licensed three minutes of audio for the Munchkins and the Witch and Dorothy. Yeah. They could not afford it, right? They could not afford what it would have cost to have done that. So they use the fans they already have purchased. They change that scene to Fantasia, and they use that large end space for the for the finale film, which, right. unlike the rest of Attraction, is very easily updated. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, what might have been, you know? <laughs> I, I, I think that's a book you should be uh, 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 writing there, Lou, the, the Disney theme parks that never were. <laughs> but, you know, and, and it... Again, 
but but you again you get that little you get that little taste you get that uh uh little sample now you know and and uh speaking of little samples uh uh, uh, people uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks can get a little sample of Oz at uh, uh, at Epcot. Right. So there's the Oz Garden as part of the the Flower and Garden Festival. Really done. You know, and I love these things, Jim. Not just because it's well themed and it, it ties into the property, but it's a great fun place for kids and really sort of brings the uh, it sort of connects the dots from the film experience into the parks as well. Well, well, you can you can tell that Disney is is uh, especially Walt Disney World. Really works on a very tight budget, but but sometimes that's not a disadvantage if you, if you use it well. And I think they did. They start with the Bomb Brothers uh, uh, circus, and you can go into the the little Midway games, and then then you have those handcrafted uh, 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 flowers, which you know just blew me away. That each flower takes about four days to uh, uh, to make, and then you've got that play area. And even though you're outsourcing that to an outside company uh for that uh, it it fits in with the theme you've even they've even got oz the name oz on on the on the thing and um what i really like and and i thought this was smart of disney is, is they have an, an an area where uh, uh, adults can sit and watch their kids play <laughs> i think that's the older i get the more i appreciate right. benches looking... <laughs> and, and, and and again if you look closely and and i i saw guests get all excited about this is that the canopy covering is actually the deflated blue uh the balloon uh of uh you know uh, uh that uh, took um oscar uh, to Oz, where he's going to become uh, the Wizard of Oz, and you have the basket there. And and again, you enter uh, uh, from the Bomb Brothers Circus, and you're exiting with that, you know, that huge Oz. And I also like the fact that they have the uh, uh, the signs of the characters in the new movie, and and explain a little bit uh, who those uh, characters are. And, and again, you know, this isn't a fortune, but but it, it was nicely done, nicely done. And from what I saw, kids were just having a ball in there. And that, that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Right. And obviously, we have to quickly mention, we've seen in the queue of the Great Movie Ride, the Ruby Slippers were in there as well, too. Don't want to sort of mm-hmm. miss the other touches. But I, I, before we get to Oz the Great and Powerful, uh, there was a couple of things, I think, that sort of led up to this b- before that. And I think back to 2005, there was not a... a, a a theatrical release motion picture, but a, a TV movie that aired that I think was meant to do a couple of different things. I think it was sort of meant to continue to test the waters in Oz, mm-hmm. but more importantly, it was there to sort of help reintroduce or introduce to a new generation the Muppets. It doesn't happen again till till maybe 2011 the right way, but Muppet Wizard of Oz TV movie did not, it was not the home run they were looking for again. Right, and and, and again... But, but it, it did uh, provide a lot of trivia questions, in, including the trivia question, <laughs> uh, name the one um, Oz uh, movie that featured Quentin Tarantino. Quint- I was going to say The Wiz, but I know I'm wrong. <laughs> no, it's The Muppet Wizards of Oz. He's in The Muppet Wizard of Oz, yeah. But, but, and, and again, you know, I, I think what is happening is if you take a look at something and that was uh, Walt's genius. Is if you look at it from a different perspective, you you can get that. So wicked! What a what a huge hit, you know. And and this this is what it could be, you know, before the whole Dorothy story, 
this is how the witches became the, the, the witches, you know? And, and so you're starting to take a look at, at, at these things in, in, in a different uh, perspective. And, and I think, uh, Disney made a, a, a very, uh, good decision to make sure that this movie again took place before the Dorothy story. Because this way you don't have those expectations of, well, I want to see Dorothy. I want to see the Scarecrow. I want to see the Tin Man. I want to see the Cowardly Lion. No, this is an entirely different story that happened before that story began. So they're not here yet, you know. So, so I, I, I think that works. And my gosh, two hundred million dollars. And then when you figure that at, at least uh, uh, half that amount has to be uh, uh, factored in for marketing, so you're now up to three hundred million dollars. Right. I hope a lot of people like this film, you know, because, because uh, again, uh, you know, uh, off mic, we were talking about the fact that Lone Ranger coming out this summer is budgeted at 300 million. Right. And, and I don't know if, if uh, it's going to make enough money, if, if enough people want to see Johnny Depp as a uh, uh, spirit guide, because he's not an Indian, he's a spirit guide. You know, out in out in the old west, and Johnny Depp was one of the original actors considered to play the character of Oz, right? In, in the Disney movie, but before that, it was uh, Robert, Robert Downey, Downey right. Jr. Iron yeah. Man could have been Oz. <laughs> I, I, Iron Man and Oz, there, see synergy. That's Disney synergy at at uh, at work, and. Right. Um, and I think Jim, I think part of the reason why this movie is made now in 2013 is mm-hmm. not because of Muppet Wizard of Oz. It's not because of the great movie, right? It's not because I think what was one of the catalysts for this was Alice in Wonderland, right? Oh. I think it being so popular, especially in 3D, right? Mm-hmm. Bill, literally a billion dollars. Disney says, okay, let, let's revisit this this formula of bringing back these classic fairy tales to screen. We, we understand we can't bring in ruby slippers, we can't do this kind of stuff, but we could make it close enough to maybe hint to or come close enough to the original without getting the lawyers all freaked out that it, it will go back to that. It'll go back to sort of that, that classic Oz tale. Yeah, I, you're you're right on target. You know, I, I I never would have suspected that Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland would have hit as 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 big. And 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 I like Tim Burton's work, but I didn't figure it would hit as as, as big as it did because they've already greenlit a sequel. They're they're working on a Broadway play version of it. And uh, one of the things uh, for listeners to take a look at is. Um, in Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, uh, in the Mad Hatter scene, there's this huge teapot. It pops up in Oz the Great and Powerful in the uh, uh, Chinatown uh, uh, sequ- sequence where all the China uh, uh, people uh, uh, live. It's not Chinatown in terms of overseas. Chinatown is actually from the Balm books where you have uh, China houses and little China people um, uh, running around. And... Uh, yes, I've seen the movie, and uh, I was I was really surprised at at how uh, daring Disney legal <laughs> was. You know, to to dance up. You know, uh, to to the point of no, we can't use anything from the MGM movie, but but can we give that sort of nod? Right. So that you know. And what uh, I think we'll do. What I think we'll do is when we go and have our WDW Radio Day at the movies mm-hmm. before the film starts, we'll talk with the people who are there about some of the things that they should look for. 
right? Yes. See how the <laughs> see those little tips of the hats, and maybe even in in terms of the way the film is shot. I don't want to give and, too much away, but and and I will say I saw the movie and I enjoyed the movie. I I, I don't know whether this will will start a franchise so that there'll be a a sequel to the prequel here, but um, but I enjoy I I enjoyed the movie and I and I think people will and I and and I think there's uh, uh, some good acting in it. I I think uh, the special effects uh, work and 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 I think for the most part the the story really works. Uh, uh, along that way, but it, 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 it but it does give some nods to the the thirty nine film, and and I was uh, I was I was happy uh, happy to see that, and and happy to see that Disney finally did an Oz film. Right, I, I agree with you. Uh, I have not seen it. I want to see it with everybody on March twenty fourth. Uh, I like what I'm hearing so far from people, and and I you know it seems to have all those requisite elements, right? It seems to have. The right director, the right, you know, Danny Elfman is doing the score. The right actors, the right story. We'll see if this is the one that maybe rekindles Oz for our generation and a new generation as well. What I'd love to hear, Jim, is from the people who are listening: Have you seen Oz the Great and Powerful, and what do you think? And have you seen any of these other stories? Do you have any of the Disney records? I had one of those records when I was a kid. Have you seen the the Muppet Wizard of Oz? Have you seen the 1985 Disney film as well, too? I'd love for you to come by the show notes over at wdwradio.com. Click on this week's podcast. There you'll not only find a place that you can comment and talk more about Oz, this segment, and the film itself, but you can also find an easy link to Jim Corcus's new books, The Revised Vault of Walt, and who's afraid of Song of the South? It's it's a it's Jim Corcus, the great and powerful, a Corcus of another color, as we like to say. Uh, Jim, I'm looking forward to the event. We've got lots more to cover in the in the coming weeks, uh, both in and out of the parks with the films and with the uh, with the theme parks as well too. This is always great, and I love the fact that you are uh, so willing and so generous with your time and being able to share these stories with us. Well, you, you're you're so gracious as always, and. Uh, for those uh, uh, listeners who can't make it to the uh, uh, the screening, which I'm looking forward to, uh, Who's Afraid of the Song of the South? The very last chapter in the book uh, covers uh, uh, Disney's uh, uh, development of uh, Rainbow Road to, to Oz, which, which, again, I think maybe somebody should take a, a look at that script and maybe it could be done in animation. Maybe it... Uh, even could be done in live action now, thanks to CGI, where you know animated things become real. I'm listen. I'm single-handedly forming a new lollipop guild for a new generation. So join me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lou, as always, th- thank you very much. Very much appreciate it. Uh, hello to all the the listeners. Uh, thank you for being so gracious and and generous. And uh, yeah, post, post comments. Lou and I always enjoy. Uh, uh, reading what what your thoughts are. So, thanks, Lou, and and I'll see you in Oz. See you in Oz, buddy. The 
time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I ask you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history, see how well you pay attention to the details and what you see, or maybe even what you hear as I quote a line from an attraction or song, and I ask you to identify where in Walt Disney World you may have heard that clip. We'll then select one winner randomly from all the correct entries to win a Disney prize package. But before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, we were talking about Disney's Animal Kingdom, and not just about animals and conservation, but about places to wander and explore, and of course, about the attractions as well. So your question last week was simple. I asked you to identify on what attractions in Disney's Animal Kingdom you travel through time. And thanks to everybody who played, because all of you said Dinosaur, formerly Countdown to Extinction. You go back in time in your Time Rover vehicle to the Cretaceous period, which took place right after the Jurassic period, which ended in, of course, this large mass extinction of dinosaurs. But not everybody mentioned the second attraction in which you travel through time. And that one is Primeval World in Dinoland, USA. Because as you climb that first hill, you are, quote unquote, transported back in time to the prehistoric age. You go up through that ramp, you pass through the time portal, and then you sort of begin your descent into the past. But I want to be fair. So if you said dinosaur, I took your answer as correct as well. But if I randomly selected you as a winner and you also said primeval world, I'm going to give you an extra prize. And that's just what I did. Because our winner this week guessed both, so they get all the prizes, including the audio tours, luggage tag, button, my Walt Disney World Trivia Book Volume 2, and I'm also going to throw in a mystery vinylmation because you got Primeval World. And our winner this week is Chris Galoo. So Chris, congratulations. I'll get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay. Thank you so much for playing, but don't worry, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So while we're talking about the movies this week, it made me think of Disney's Hollywood Studios, which, when it opened as Disney MGM Studios, was a real working production facility. In fact, live-action films were actually produced there, as well as animated full-length features. So tell me this. What was the very first Disney movie to be filmed at the Disney MGM Studios? You have until Sunday, March 17th at 11.59 p.m. to email your answer to contest at www.radio.com. This week you'll be playing for the audio tours, a WW Radio luggage tag, button, and a copy of Jim Corcus's book, The Revised Vault of Walt. So again, tell me the first movie to be filmed at the Disney MGM Studios. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Don't forget to visit the website over at www.radio.com for our daily blog post, weekly live video broadcast every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. You can be part of the discussion of this week's Walt Disney World News. There are new videos. You can sign up for our newsletter. Connect with me. I'm at Lou Mangello on Twitter, facebook.com slash Radio. Our Pinterest page is there. YouTube, and you can also download the free WW Radio app for your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. Easy, free access to the podcast, blogs, video. 
you can connect with me, you can see upcoming live events and lots more. You know, I'd love to hear from you as well, too. You can comment in the show notes, explore the rest of the site while you're there, be part of the conversation in the discussion forums. You can also call the voicemail, be heard on the air at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. Or you can email me if you have a question you want answered on the show at lou at wdwradio.com. As we mentioned during the segment, don't forget our upcoming events, including our WW Radio at the Movies event, our Meet of the Month right afterwards in downtown Disney, plenty of other events as well, including our day at the Walt Disney Family Museum on Saturday, April 14th. They're also going to have events coming up this summer in Toronto, New York City, and this fall, we're going to be on the Disney Fantasy for seven days with our very special guest, Ridley Pearson. Don't forget, too, about our Meets of the Month every month in Walt Disney World. To find out more about any or all these, visit the events page over at www.radio.com. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, Mouse Fan Travel. They're my official recommended travel provider because it's who I use. So whether you're coming to Disney World, Land, Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, or anywhere in the world, Becky Mankin and her team of agents give you the best possible prices, all available discounts, an incredible level of personal attention and service all at no additional cost to you. You can visit them over at mousefantravel.com. If you're coming down to Walt Disney World, want a little bit of extra room, spread out, bring the extended family. AllStarVacationHomes.com has more than 150 homes within just a couple of miles of Walt Disney World. You can check them out online. And if you want some more Disney magic delivered right to you at home or the office or your iPad or Kindle device, you can subscribe and order back issues to Celebrations Magazine. You can also order the digital version as well by visiting them over at celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links on Facebook. Comment there as well, too. And please come by. Rate and review the show and the apps over at iTunes. Very, very helpful. Very much appreciated. And finally, and most importantly, I want to sincerely thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen to the show, for the support and the friendship, and for letting me share my passion for Disney with you, with this show, and in so many other ways. And I want you to have that same feeling about what you do each and every day. So focus on the future and don't look back because you're not headed in that direction. Have an amazing week this week. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou. Uh... Just wanted to give you a shout-out. I'm actually on my way to a job interview at Disney World right now, and I'd like to give you a big part of uh, that uh, appreciation for the parks and everything Disney and give you a lot of credit for making me want to go after my dream job. But uh, So I'm pretty nervous right now, heading there right now. My appointment's at 4, so... Uh, Hopefully I'll join the Disney family and be able to uh, get inside and find all kinds of other neat stuff about the parks. So I just wanted to say thank you and what a great show you put on. Listen to the podcast all the time and uh, just thanks again. Um, my name's Travis and I'm from Florida. Hey Lou, this is Paul from Texas. Checking in from the Port of Galveston as we prepare to embark on our six-night cruise on the Disney Magic. Just wanted to say how much you appreciate the podcast and how much uh, this trip has made us an even bigger fan of the Disney online community and how wonderful they are. We've had an exciting trip so far. Uh, we drove and stayed over in, in Houston last night, and uh, during the night at the hotel, our car was broken into 
and most of our clothing and luggage was stolen out of our car. Um, so we've been frantically running around this morning trying to shop at Walmart and Target and get stuff that we need. And as soon as we put stuff online, several folks of the Fish Extender group we've been doing uh, reached back out to us just to let us know how if there was any ask if there was anything they could get for us. Those who live closer to Galveston, if there was anything they could bring, and it was just really a good pick me up for uh, what has been not a good evening for so far. But uh, anyway, looking forward to our cruise and uh, hope uh, to hear uh, hear this on the podcast. Thanks. You've got a friend in me. Yeah.